Welcome to I Hate It Here, the podcast for HR and people professionals, making the hardest job in the world just a little bit easier. I'm Hibi Youssef. The most problematic kind of bias is confirmation bias, right? So it means that I expect you to be a certain way, be a certain kind of employee, be a certain kind of performer based on things that aren't actually about your performance. So maybe I look at where you went to college. Maybe I look at your age. Maybe I look at your race or your gender or your prior employer and was that prestigious or not. And all of this creates an impression that I have of you as either likely to be a strong performer or a weak performer. The key to your business is success, your people. Get 15.5, the performance management platform that helps you improve employee engagement and performance. Visit 15.5.com slash demo to schedule a demo today. Hi, welcome back to another episode of I Hate It Here, the podcast all about work and how to make it better. I am your host, Toby Youssef, and joining me today is Kieran Snyder, the co-founder and CEO of Textio. Kieran, welcome. I would love for you to share a bit with the audience about yourself and what Textio does. Yeah. So as you said, I'm the CEO and one of the two founders of Textio. I've been working at the intersection of language and software and work culture for my entire career, which is longer now than I would like to admit. But it's been a while. Uh, We started Textio about eight and a half years ago, and we started it to make work fair. That's what it's about. So Textio makes software that helps you communicate better, especially in the people functions at work. So how do you write more inclusively? How do you write hiring content that engages a diverse group of people, not just the usual crowd? How do you write feedback at work that is actionable, specific, and fair for everybody? So I'm really excited to be here today. I'm so pumped to have you. I've admired the work that you all have been doing for so long, and I'm dying to know how you got into this line of work your origin story? So going back like a really long time, my dad is an engineer. He's actually still running his small engineering company at almost the age of 85. My dad turns 85 next year. I know it's amazing. And my mother was a writer. And so in a very real way, I grew up to be an engineer and a writer also. I studied linguistics and math and computer science in college and then for my PhD. So I've been in like the the intersection of math and language forever. And then I ended up kind of accidentally in software. Uh, It wasn't actually a plan that I had, like a lot of careers. Uh, I was going to be an academic and then I didn't want to be an academic. And I had a friend who worked at Microsoft at the time who said, you should come work here. And I was like, nope, I hate all those people. I'm not interested in that at all. And he said, well, but you need a job. And that was the case. I needed a job. And long story short, very grateful to that friend because it kind of started my software career and gave me the opportunity to observe tech culture front and center, which created a passion around using my academic and professional knowledge to improve the state of affairs in workplace culture. I love that you just blended everything. I have worked (laughs) at way too many tech companies and I feel like I have trauma from each one that I work at. So I... (laughs) 
Oh no. Well, let's, let's I, talk just, about that. Let's <laughs> talk about the drama. Like I feel like it drives a lot of what I do, but before we get to like the juice of today's episode, I, I like to ask every single person who joins, do you have a hot take about either HR or the work that you do around performance and making work fair? Like one hot take. One hot take. Just one. I have so many. I know. Um, I'm sorry. That's all right. No, no, no. I, I think maybe training doesn't work. Maybe is a hot take that I'll share that training, at least on its own, tends to give people a false sense of confidence and security without changing anything, especially if you're doing it sort of once a year. So maybe I'll I'll start with that. Yeah. Haven't they shown that like training around DEI things actually makes the environment like worse? Or like when you're training about unconscious bias, then people actually become like more biased to a certain extent, or it's like internalized. That's what I read. It depends on the training, but yeah, it's common that people, for two reasons, one is they notice biases that they didn't consciously um, have awareness of before, and they reason through to sort of thinking their point of view is sound. And the second is, and the, the thing where most training alone programs go wrong is it gives organizations and people a false sense of security that they have trained themselves out of the problems, which of course... One, a one-hour training course when you have decades of lived experience can only do so much, even if it's perfect. And so it gives people this false sense of security. They've checked the box, like, I'm not biased anymore. And of course, we know how that story ends. They are. <laughs> they still are. <laughs> we all are. Exactly. Oh, this is going to be such a fun episode today. I'm excited to chat a little bit about how we actually make performance management fair. So we, we talked a little bit about training, but I want today's episode. And I feel like training and performance management actually go hand in hand a lot where you try to train people not to write bad performance reviews and they end up writing worse performance reviews. But maybe <laughs> we'll get to that in a second. But I want our focus today to be about making performance management more fair. And I think an interesting place to start is how would you define that fairness in the context of performance management? Yeah. So let's start with there's three pieces, right? There's the work that you ask somebody to do up front. There's the coaching you give them and feedback you provide while they're doing their work. And then there's sort of the formal assessment that you do of the work that they've done. And so fairness kind of comes into play at all three of these points, starting with, are you aligning the right work to the right people? So if a manager is great, they set this up so that both the work succeeds and the people grow. But we know that not everybody gets equal access to the growth opportunities. Not every manager is so thoughtful and intentional about aligning for skills and development areas. So that's one place things can go wrong. The second place things go wrong, which I think is the most common, is that people don't have a dialogue as they're doing the work to know what they can be doing better. And we know that this is really likely to go wrong when the manager and the employee have a different identity. So if you have managers and employees who have different genders or different races, there is much less likely to be specific and actionable coaching along the way, which of course means that employee is less likely to be successful. And then you get to the third part, that formal assessment. If those first two things haven't been set up correctly, you end up with people who haven't been assigned the right work clearly and haven't gotten feedback along the way 
failing when it comes to formal assessments. And then of course they feel really poorly treated because they have been. And so I think fairness sort of infuses at all three parts of that spectrum. Ah, That's really fascinating. My whole next quarter is going to, all my newsletters are going to be about setting expectations and catching up on goals, all because I, I see this happen in real time all the time where it's a job isn't properly scoped. The expectation, no one knows how to set expectations well. And then everyone's freaked out on how to give feedback on these expectations that they never set correctly. And so it's kind of a vicious cycle. And then we get to the end with performance management. And I, I have been in that situation where I have felt like my performance is like not fairly judged. And I feel like anyone listening has probably had that moment in a performance review where they think to themselves like, well, I don't really agree with this. I agree. One of the things that I started doing a couple of years ago, I started doing it with new employees and then I started following it through for people I had more experience with as well, or people who were more highly tenured, just simple one page documents that set out Here's the baseline expectation for your role. So if you do this, good. Here's what great would look like in your role. So above and beyond baseline expectations, you're starting to think about things like promotions. This is what great would look like. And then just one or two areas to watch out for based on what I've observed about your performance. And then we look at this document together every month. Now, the expectations usually don't change every month, but the what to watch out for can. And it gives people something concrete that they can use as a reference point for conversations. It's so easy to do and almost no one does it. Yeah, I was going to say we at work week, we do like a biweekly, bimonthly. I always mix up all of them. Honestly, (laughs) any any terminology together, I always mix that up. But we do every two weeks uh, feedback Fridays where the employee gets feedback on three questions, the manager also gets feedback on three questions that they're giving each other two-way feedback. And I found that to be, we're just like starting it because I want people to get in the habit before we go to this like official performance review. I don't, I have this big gripe with official performance reviews because I just feel like there's so much wrong with them when they're intertwined with compensation. And then it's like performance and compensation become intertwined and people think I have to behave a certain way to achieve this performance. Like I have some deep seated hate towards performance evaluations. And that that's perfect for my next question. Cause I, I want to know like, what are the common challenges you've seen when it comes to traditional performance reviews? We just talked about kind of like an untraditional monthly check-in. Now, what are the problems you see when people get to like the traditional performance review? There's a few, um, <laughs> some of which are, just kind of common sense, right? If you're only providing feedback once a year or twice a year, odds are pretty good that the feedback isn't very specific or relevant. And possibly it only covers what happened in the last two weeks since you wrote the feedback. And so that means that maybe once a year, people have the opportunity for recency in their feedback. And that's the thing that determines their compensation for the year to come. And so you miss 50 weeks in that assessment. So obviously just handling it once or twice a year and no other opportunities for feedback along the way sets up the organization to fail and the employee to fail for sure. People aren't good at giving feedback. No, like no one is born into the world with great conflict orientation skills. Like that is a skill you only get with practice And so when you do role plays with managers, we've done this recently at Textio where we come up with scenarios and ask managers to role play through how they might provide feedback. People are not confident. 
people are not confident. And so you ask them and even very experienced managers struggle. So you get to this traditional performance review situation. And even if the manager has just made an a decision about your compensation based on your performance, they may not even have the tools to communicate the rationale for their decision, which, you know, maybe the decision wasn't great. Maybe the communication wasn't great. Maybe it's both. But these high stakes, big events tend to go wrong when we pack everything into just a particular moment in time. Yeah. And I also feel like they waste hours of people's time and energy. And it's like, there was like a stat once that I read that if your performance review process runs, like I one time worked somewhere where our performance review starts to finish was like an eight week process, mm-hmm. eight weeks. And I was like, that is eight weeks of the people team's time that, for what? Like if at the end of the day, the managers are having a hard time with it and the employees are having a hard time with it. Why are we spending eight weeks to do something that's just a moment in time feedback session? It's, you know, you say eight weeks, and I think that's actually pretty fast compared to most organizations. So like, I think you can probably take what you just said and multiply it by two or two and a half, and you you find what's typical in organizations. So if you're not getting any increased performance or business value out of it, then they, I agree with you. Why do it? We um, released a research report a couple of months back earlier this fall that showed that there's a really clear connection between people receiving regular high quality feedback. By the way, it could be positive, could be constructive, but it's specific, it's actionable and so on. And people's decision to stay or go in the organization. So it turns out people who receive low quality feedback, even if it's positive, are 63% more likely to quit within the next year. And so if you're going to spend those eight weeks, it'd be better to distribute it across the entirety of the year and give people discrete feedback events so that they always feel like they're getting high quality feedback. It drives your employee retention. And of course, that drives your business performance. It drives everything. But people, like you said earlier, like, so we're not naturally born giving feedback. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing is like, we're afraid of conflict. And I find that so fascinating because I tell people a lot in HR, like, if you are afraid of conflict, do not do this job. This job is like, you have to, there is always conflict at the core of this job. And if you are not in conflict, then you are potentially letting like bad things happen to either your employees or your company. Like you have to be able to speak up in HR. And it's just so fascinating because so many people tell me like they hate conflict. And I'm, and I think back to like my lived experience where at our dinner table, my dad was an academic. And so we would debate things. <laughs> that was like our dinner table conversation, yep. debate. You had to make your point. You had to make it quickly. You had to make it concisely. Or one of your siblings could speak over you so quickly. And we just got really good at conflict in my family. Was it healthy? Not sure. Proudest things is my daughter telling me recently how much she enjoys logical conflict. Like, oh, that's good. That'll serve you well in your your (laughs) profession. You know, it's but it's true in HR especially, but it's true for every manager as well. It is not a low emotional labor job. It is not a low conflict job. And I said, one of the most interesting things I said is when you see these identity differences between a manager and an employee, people get even more conflict averse. So same study, Black women who are not highly represented in corporate management roles receive nine times as much feedback that is not actionable 
right? Not specific. Nine times? Nine times as much as white men. And this is exacerbated even more when their manager is different from them in both race and gender. So these identity differences themselves make the normal conflict aversion that managers feel even worse, right? We're not really skilled at having conflict, especially across difference. I'm thinking back to like every relationship I've ever had with a manager, and I'm just replaying a lot of those moments where I did feel like it was like a highly intense, like contentious relationship. And a lot of times identity was different in those relationships. Yep. And I think that's very fascinating. It's especially fascinating. I don't know, like 70% of HR is women. I think that was the last time I read the mm-hmm. stat. And there are not many women or people of color who are CEO in, in leadership position, Fortune 500, like we've seen a marked decline over the last year. And so inherently, if 75% of HR or 70% of HR is women, and the average leader is potentially a white man, that could see that relationship also being contentious. And I've written about the CEO and head of HR relationship and why it is at its core potentially contentious. And I've never written about it from the lens of identity, but I think that is just like a very, a very interesting thing to observe. We all want to change work. Like the, the never ending consensus I hear from every HR person I know is I want work to change. But then I look to see who's in power and I read the stats about less than 4% of, of women and people of color get funding, get VC funding. Mm-hmm. And I think how's the world ever going to change if at its core, those relationships are always going to be a bit contentious and that you need to be comfortable with that to actually make change. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Could rent. Yeah, because I just, I have now worked with two male CEOs and I leave the relationships, good, bad. They're the gambit of them. I've worked with actually a few male CEOs and I still think to myself, the world would be better if more HR people became CEOs. Well, make it happen. <laughs> One can help. One can help. If you're make listening today, go, go be a CEO. But I, some I, of brings, listeners. I know. <laughs> I mean, I always say like next for me is I need to be my own CEO because I don't know if I can do it much more, but it brings up different different podcast. I'll tell you different, different. (laughs) Yeah. It'll, I would have you on that one too. And you could tell me all the reasons why I probably should not do it. And then we're (laughs) through it live, but it brings me to my next question, which is very much about like the biases we're facing. Like a lot of our perspectives from our lived experience and we have our bias unconscious and conscious. How does that show up and, and really affect the performance process at work and making it fair? How does that come into play? Well, when people, bias is a shorthand for lots of things, but in the workplace, the most problematic kind of bias is confirmation bias, right? So it means that I expect you to be a certain way, be a certain kind of employee, be a certain kind of performer based on things that aren't actually about your performance. So maybe I look at where you went to college. Maybe I look at your age. Maybe I look at your race or your gender or your prior employer and was that prestigious or not. And all of this creates an impression that I have of you as either likely to be a strong performer or a weak performer. And so then what we do as managers is we make decisions because people do it that reinforce our confirmation bias. So if you join my team, I didn't hire you, but we got reworked or something and we're together and I have decided up front that you're likely to not be a strong performer because I didn't like your old manager 
or I didn't like where you went to college or whatever it might be, I tend to assign you work that reinforces this belief that I have. I give you the less important work. And then of course, when you have the less important work, you have less opportunity to deliver impact. And I'm probably not investing as much time in you along the way because I don't have a high expectation for you. One of my uh, favorite little bias tidbits is again that Black women are four times more likely to be called overachievers at work than everybody else. And who are the next two groups that are called overachievers? It's Asian women and Latina women. So all the women of color are likely to be called overachievers. And it seems super positive, right? But in fact, when I call you an overachiever, I'm saying you did a great job despite my low expectations for you. You somehow managed to break my confirmation bias. Good job. So it's not really a compliment. So when we look at the way different groups are described, even in nominally positive feedback, it reveals the confirmation biases that we brought to the table in the first place. Ooh, that's I'm feeling just like so many feelings right now. Yeah. I'm feeling so many feelings right now because that is, I'm going to think about that a lot. Because well, that is very triggering. common. It's, it's triggering. Yeah. Like whenever we, you know, we obviously start from the orientation that software can help address some of these issues is why we make software around it. But whenever you look at the core data, actually, when we first published the landmark feedback report last year of 25,000 people across 250 organizations, and we looked at the patterns that were there, our VP of talent and DEIB, Jackie Clayton, said, hey, I almost feel like this report should come with a trigger warning because so many of us will read it and this experience we've had for so many years of feeling kind of gaslit, like, hey, was that, that person called me an overachiever. Did they, did they mean something nice by that? Or was there something else underneath it? Like we've heard from so many people that they felt seen in the data. And this year's report was no different. And I've been in the space for a really long time. I started publishing about bias and performance reviews in 2014 before there was a Textio. And it still strikes me every time we release new data about this, how much people feel both seen, validated, but also triggered by the patterns that are there because it really brings up a lot of trauma for people. Yeah. There are weeks where I end the week thinking, was that in my head? is that in my head is like a game I often play. And it's really funny because my husband and I will have discussions about it and his perspective is so different from mine. And I'll mm -hmm. be like, well, you have that perspective because like you are a white man. And like, I have this perspective because I'm this. And like, there's a big gap between like what we're perceiving. And he's like, well, I don't think that was, that wasn't in your head. And I'm like, you can't say that because it's really a perspective I felt. And that's what led me honestly to y'all's data. Because I think I read one of your, one of the studies that said that women receive more personality-based feedback than men. Whereas men get yep. feedback on their achievements, women get it on their personality. And I have felt that so deeply in my core where people have told me like, you're too direct, you're too honest, you're too aggressive. And I'm like, where, where do you see all of that? Like, help me understand what that has anything to do with the fact that I finished this project amazingly on time within budget, like way above anyone's expectations. And so I do feel like when I read a lot of the things you put out there, it honestly, like, it does make me feel seen because I feel invisible sometimes where I'm like, I must be imagining this. Now imagine I'm also doing this work for all of my employees. 
And so I have this perspective and this like belief. And then I also want to protect my employees from feeling the same way I feel. It's very fascinating. I also think you were one of the earliest people out there to be writing about when the AI boom was happening earlier this year and the year before. Everyone was like, AI, AI, it's going to help performance management so much. And I think I pointed to an article you wrote where I was like, no, 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 like, (laughs) you can't use AI to write performance management feedback. It ends up being just biased because think about what trained this AI. Well, it's fascinating. I'll take a counterpoint. I think AI has the potential to actually do better than people have done. People have done very badly in terms of biases. But if you're not designing to mitigate biases from the very beginning, you will just perpetuate what people have done in the workplace for decades and decades. You know, when we built out Textio Lift, which is the performance feedback oriented product that we have, we specifically in places where the product relies on AI will show you whether content is verified by Textio from a bias standpoint or not. Because if you aren't actually looking intentionally with knowledge to spot bias and what's been written, you will just perpetuate what's been there. I think my, my favorite of, of the uh, chat GPT data is when you compare feedback that is written for somebody who went to Harvard University compared mm-hmm. to somebody who went to Howard University, a prominent HBCU, the Harvard alums are more likely to be described as, you know, their, their development areas are, you should step in to lead more where the Howard alums get things like not technical enough or missing attention to detail. So if you're not watching for that at the level of implementation, you will just perpetuate what's been out there before. Yeah, that's such a good tip. How do you take your team from I hate it here to I love it here? I'll tell you with 15.5. Their comprehensive performance management solution equips HR professionals to identify early signs of disengagement, empower managers to build stronger relationships with top performers, and foster a culture of mutual growth where employees can truly thrive alongside the business, leaving you to never worry about retention again. Visit 15.5.com slash demo to schedule a demo today. I think a lot of people are trying to figure out how to leverage AI within HR and I feel like there's going to be, we're going to learn a lot in the next few years. I feel like we already have had a year of like people trying to demystify what to do with AI and HR. And the first place that people want to talk about it is when it comes to feedback. And so I do love the idea that like you can use AI, but it needs to be able to spot what it is you're writing and help you understand where that bias is coming into play, which is so great because I think we talked a little bit, we've touched on performance management software and you were talking about a tool that you all have, but how can performance management software almost contribute to or even hinder that fairness then? Well, let's, before we even get to software, I will say that, you know, one of my second hot takes that I didn't uh, mention at the beginning (laughs) is that whatever software or training or intentions you have, literally none of it will matter if you don't have real behavioral accountabilities for managers Mm -hmm. in your organization to write feedback and to write it with quality. And what I mean by like real accountabilities are if your managers can get promoted without having provided quality feedback for their own employees, you do not have an accountable system. If your managers don't themselves face performance management when they've missed this part of their job, you do not have an accountable system. And so to me, when I think about the software and angle, which you just brought up and like yeah. really sort of what we build towards is we build towards organizations that have 
cultural alignment around that system of accountability. And then all the software does is it's actually just a helpful tool for managers to live the accountability. So if you know that you really are accountable for writing high quality feedback, then having a digital coach work alongside you because, you know, God bless HRBPs, but they cannot possibly scale to all hundreds or thousands of people in an organization. You know, they can't manually audit every single thing. And so we really see software as helping provide some of the coaching digitally so that HRBPs can really prioritize their time if they see that that leader over there is really struggling because they're not providing what the team needs, that's where they're going to put their time for the next couple of months, right? And so, but none of it matters if you don't have a system with your CEO buying in that the thing that gets people promoted or fired if they're managers is literally doing the management job, right? Yeah. HR leaders, yeah, have to have that. I was just going to say, would you say like the average manager does actually give feedback on the right cadence? Like across all managers... This is just a thought exercise across all managers that you could think of. Like, do you think the average manager actually gives quality feedback in a regular cadence? They do not. I think the interesting question is whether they think they are. So when I suspect if you surveyed managers and you asked managers, how often are you providing useful, actionable feedback for your employees? they would say they're providing it more often than employees would say they're receiving it. Receiving it. Mm-hmm. And so I think some of it is intent and accountability for sure, but some of it is skill. And so sometimes managers may think they are providing something of value, but they're not. You know, and so I had the conversation with you. That conversation went pretty well. And then you'll ask the employee and they're like, I have no idea what my manager was just talking about. You know, and so I think there's a disconnect sometimes between even what managers think they're doing and what they're actually providing. Yeah. And so I think bringing us back to the point that you made earlier, like you can't have the software and think that the software is going to enforce and hold people accountable. You have to have that first and then you can leverage the software to actually make help you deliver better, more quality feedback. Yeah. And use the software to help you understand who's really doing it. So one of the important elements Mm. of this is to be able to see as a people leader, who in your organization, which divisions, which departments, which demographics really are receiving high quality feedback. So again, if you discover your marketing department is struggling you may then go correlate that to the employee engagement data you have. And you're like, oh, I get it. I see why people are leaving out of the marketing team. And I I like feedback because it's kind of a, it's a leading indicator. If you can spot things going wrong in feedback, you have the opportunity to get ahead of the really problematic stuff like Mm -hmm. pay inequities, employee attrition. And so I think the software helps you write better, but it's really valuable that it also helps people leaders know who's actually doing it. Yeah, I think it all starts with feedback. It's the foundation of any, I think, great organization. It's like the number one or two reasons during the pandemic that people were leaving their roles was compensation, but also growth opportunities. Yep. And I think about growth opportunities so often because I'm like, if they're getting feedback, regular feedback, they should always feel like they have growth opportunities. Exactly. And they should feel like there's projects for them to work on and a level for them to move up. And, and it just feels like, we all, it all falls to the wayside. I personally think it's because managers are asked to do way too much already. 
And then you ask them to like lead these projects and coach. And those are two different minds, two different like context shifting is quite hard in the day to day when you're deep in a project and then you have to shift to tell somebody, here's some feedback I observed and here's how you could fix it. And here's what I do differently. And so I think there's a lot to unpack here around feedback. I could probably honestly talk about feedback for like 18 hours straight. You and me both. <laughs> Look, I could just live talking through it. Cause it's also, I love the idea too, of like, you're giving feedback from your lens and your perspective. And I think where a lot of managers go wrong is they tell their team, like, I want you to do it the way I would do it. And that's what they think is feedback, but that's not what real feedback actually is. So there's, yeah. there's a lot to unpack there. Okay, so back to systems and tech. So we talked a little bit about that. Have you seen any emerging trends or innovation in performance management that help you believe that we could further the fairness and enhance it outside of the work, the wonderful work you are doing? I haven't seen a lot yet. I do think this is going to be an area of great investment over the next 12 to 24 months. Right now, a couple things. Like on the readiness side, I, positive. I do see more organizations are ready to make real change. I think there is a huge focus right now among HR leaders on both employee retention partly because high growth organizations are not so high growth right now and that they're hiring less. So people are focusing more on current employees and opportunities for current employees, which I think is good. And we do see an increased appetite around fairness and making work fair. You know, we, we talk about at Textio, like a lot of our higher purposes to make work fair. And I see a lot of receptiveness around that and focus. I think there is a gap where we're one organization that is jumping in to try to help fill the gap. But I think there is a gap right now between the intent that a lot of HR leaders have and the tools that are available to them to use. And so I said, the first thing you can do is try to get your accountability systems in place and then the second is really to look for the set of tools that help you follow through on those intentions, whether it is writing feedback more effectively, some of the systems that help you later, like I really like Cindio and GapSquare on the pay equity front, like by the time you're at pay and equity, it's mm -hmm. a little bit too late, let's be honest, but it can help you understand where you do have work to do and get back upstream into equitable employee experiences on the ground. So I really like what organizations like those companies are doing in that space. It's kind of a complement to how we think of the feedback piece. I love that. Pay and equity, also a big passion point of mine. Yes. <laughs> could talk about that for another 18 hours, but I think it's really interesting. I wrote one newsletter on the concept of fairness at work. Like, are you being treated unfairly at work? And I said, I cannot talk about this concept of fairness without talking and addressing systemic racism. And like, here's what you need to know about systemic racism. And I just laid out like five bullets about systemic racism and then moved on to write through my whole newsletter. And I got a reader response and it was like through a form that I have. And they said, I cannot believe that you addressed systemic racism in a fairness newsletter. It's a made up construct by our current administration. And I do not think that you should write about this. And I honestly was at a bit of a loss because I was like, you, I think you're reading the wrong newsletter. <laughs> if you're reading my newsletter, yeah. I wonder why I'm talking about this, but I, I don't feel like you can talk about fairness at work without talking about fairness in the broader world and what it means to have access to things. Yeah. 
Absolutely. It's really interesting the um, mental gymnastics people will do to stay comfortable. Yeah. yeah. All the time. I was I was truly just like, you could have unsubscribed to this newsletter. Like you literally didn't need to write this to me. Like I clearly have a different viewpoint than you, but I just remember thinking to myself, like, this is the thing that HR people we probably encounter all the time. Like maybe not as blatant as what the person was saying, but we're trying to do the right thing and help people and make work fair. And we're encountering folks that maybe unconsciously really do not believe there are problems that we are trying to solve. And well, so I think that's- or that person's conception of make work fair is make it better for me. Yep. <laughs> me personally only, which I, I think is unfortunately not uncommon. But I think at the level of systems, most HR leaders, most of them really do understand the relationship between historical inequities, systemic racism, sexism, ableism, ageism, you can name it, and fair workplaces. Yeah. But I think helping other people to understand, like, it feels like the never ending job of like, it's no longer like you can't say that. It's more like you shouldn't say that and here's why. And I think that is a piece too that a lot of HR leaders struggle with when helping their leadership team understand. That's why I think like leveraging a tool to help you say like, here's why this feedback is rooted in something else that's like not fair could be incredibly helpful for a lot of leadership teams. Otherwise, like I'm out there playing the offense or defense. Well, one of the reasons I really, really like data and one of the reasons we just share the data of like, look, this is thousands of people, hundreds of organizations. Here's who is getting which kinds of feedback is the data kind of speaks for itself. So you brought up the personality thing. When I say, look at the data, women are getting 22% more personality feedback than any other gender at work. That's just a fact. Like that's not you know, I don't even try to tell you why that happens. We know why that happens, but like, I don't even have to tell you why that happens. As an HR leader, you should be really concerned about that, right? Because you know that personality feedback received by anyone is not helpful, appropriate. It's not going to help somebody grow. And so for me, I often like to just be like, okay, yep, yep. Black women are receiving nine times as much inactionable feedback. Everybody should think that's a problem, regardless of how we got here. And so sometimes you can sort of get, especially in the tech mindset, you know, and in technology and finance Mm -hmm. data often is held in this elevated position. So I think this is how I got into publishing data about this in the first place is it was a really good way to communicate with skeptics. Now it's not necessarily a good way to communicate with racists, like (laughs) someone who's determined, (laughs) but you do have people in the middle who are skeptical and data often can help them go on the journey. I think it, it helps so much. There's so much, even from like thinking about what I was like as a child and the things that were acceptable then to like now in the last, like however many years, I've just been excited about more people having this conversation about fairness at work because I often say to my friends, like, I feel this immense burden as a woman to be extraordinary at everything I do. And sometimes I look at my male counterparts and I think, why do you just get to be like ordinary and that's good enough? Yeah. And so like having the data, I think is just so helpful because I can, I always, I go back to that personality stuff all the time. I send people that report constantly. I'm like, if you are truly wondering like what is holding back women and people of color at work, like you should read this report because it helps you understand the feedback we're giving them. And that tells you a much bigger story. Well, thank Um, you. Work is, I mean, I just, I find everything you all do fascinating. Data is super important too, because when you're right, when connecting it to the skeptics, it's like, oh, you don't believe my personal lived experience. Here's a data set that tells you 
all the things that I'm also telling exactly. you about exactly. why your feedback is bad and biased. So that's really great. I'm so thankful we had a chance to have this conversation today. I think a lot of HR people are really struggling with performance and feedback to what to the point you made, like we're focusing on retaining our employees and our employees want those growth opportunities, but when they don't get good feedback, they're going to leave. So if you had one tip to give an HR person who's listening today to like go do one thing after the, listening to this podcast episode, what is the one thing you would tell them to do? Top thing is try to get buy-in from your CEO that there's at least one important manager accountability that makes a manager's performance review. And that is providing written feedback at least four times a year for their employees. Like in writing, so you know that it happened, so you know that it was thoughtful. And if a manager doesn't do that, it doesn't matter what else they're delivering. They don't get to keep being a manager in your organization. If you were doing one thing that would change the game. And by the way, if your CEO says no, that will tell you that you're always going to be swimming upstream in that yep. organization. That like, yep. no matter what you do, you will not be able to achieve what you're trying to achieve. So that's, you know, that's what I would say. Oh, my soul, my soul hurts. Cause I, I know how many people are going to listen to that and say, there's no way my CEO would ever agree. But if you're a CEO listening to this, you really should care about your managers giving feedback because that continues to be the number one touch point for the employees. There's also that stat that like your manager has a bigger impact on your mental health and your partner. I think about that frequently. I'm like wow. the person I live with every day, live, breathe, and hopefully will die with. Like my manager has a bigger impact on my mental health than that person. Just remember, just, 63% more likely to quit if the people receive low quality or no feedback. So bring that stat to your CEO because your CEO doesn't want people to quit within 12 months. Like because no one it costs us money. <laughs> Because we lose a lot of money when that happens. Exactly. Oh, I love that. Okay. We always like to wrap up with like an HR hill you would die on. Do you have an HR hill you would die on? Uh, yes. I, I've said it a few times here, but like if you yes. don't have it encoded in your systems, nothing else matters. And you as an HR leader are set up to fail. So make sure you either can influence your exec leaders or you go work for some that are going to have values alignment with you here. Because if it's not a real OKR in the organization, you know, a real documented goal that people have to achieve, then the organization isn't going to improve. I had this call recently with an organization about Textile Lift. They had joined the waitlist for our product and they were excited mm -hmm. to check it out, which by the way, people can do if they want at textio.com hyphen slash textio.com slash lift hyphen waitlist. But these people were on the call and said, actually, we don't want managers to spend time writing feedback down. They're just way too busy. And I stopped the call and I was like, I just don't think it's going to make sense for us to work together. <laughs> like, I don't think there's anything I can provide for you that is going to help you achieve what you want to around culture of feedback in the organization. So like, if you don't have that buy-in in your organization, go somewhere where you will or yeah. start really trying to get ground level support. Yeah. I hear from our managers at Workweek. I feel really blessed, by the way, that like I launched our two-week iterative feedback process and all the managers at Workweek were like, yes, 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 we want to do this. And I still hear months later, I think we launched this in January, months later, people still give me shout outs in our wins channel about the fact that we put this together. 
And I, well, I mean, I feel grateful. I, we could also take our feedback to the next level, but I just feel grateful that my managers wanted to do this because I've worked places where managers have looked me dead in the eye and said, I don't care if you remind me 10 times, I'm not doing it. Well, good for you for getting into a place where you values alignment because you're going to get yep. so much done. I literally asked the CEO on my, when we were talking about me coming to work week, I asked questions around feedback, how they felt about it, how we thought about growth. And it was very clear, like very clear values alignment. And I was like, I will come and do this hard work with you because you align with all the things that I care about. You want people to grow here. You want people to get feedback and that can happen. And I feel quite, it feels magical some days because I'm like, ooh, I hadn't had this before. And now that I do, and I think it definitely is a game changer to have your managers trust and respect you and want to do the right thing by their employees. It's a great note to end on. I know. Wow. Looks like I set it up. Ending on that note, how can people get in touch with you? And if they're excited about Textile Lift, what, how do they get on this wait list? Yeah, you can go to our website to sign up for the waitlist. It's textio.com slash lift hyphen waitlist. And if you go sign up, we will uh, get in touch with you when a spot is available. You can always drop us any questions about our data at research at textio.com. And we would love for you to use the report textio.com slash report so that you can get all the latest and greatest data for your organization. Thank you so much for joining me today. When I say like hero status for me is all the great things that you and Textio are doing and putting out there in the world and helping us all get better and be mindful of like our blind spots. I truly like reading the reports. I do agree with the trigger warning, but I really felt in my soul like, oh, I feel seen for like the first time in a very long time in HR. This data is saying and telling the story that I've actually lived. And I think a lot of people are thankful and grateful for the work that you all are doing. Thank you so much. I loved having you here today. Thanks for tuning in. Keep up with all the latest HR resources by subscribing on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen. And if you love I Hate It Here, tell an HR friend. I'll see you next time.